Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. This morning we, we conclude our look at this parable Jesus tells, maybe one of his most famous parables, the parable of the sower. And I'd like again to ask you to stand with me. And if you can say it from memory with me, say it from <laughs> I don't think so, but we've done it three times and it's become familiar to us. Matthew 13, verses 1 through 23, this is the word of God. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him, so he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil. Immediately they sprang up, but because they had no depth of soil, when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You'll keep on seeing, but will not perceive, for the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Please be seated. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you, through your Son, you say to us, if you have ears to hear, let us hear, let us listen. And I ask, Father, that you will give us ears to hear. 
that you will cause our ears to be open to you and your word. And I pray, Father, that you will cause it not to be mere words, but to come with power by the Spirit and to bring conviction in our lives and to turn us to you so that we find strength. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This week we turn to the last two types of soil listed in this parable. We spent a week on each of the first two. Now, on our third week, we're going to do the last two. These two soils are actually hard to distinguish. And it seems clear from the teaching of Jesus here and elsewhere that not only are these two soils hard for outsiders to the church and the kingdom of God to distinguish, so that those looking in from the outside are not always aware of the distinction and that there is two class of plant, two types of soil, two varieties of, of, of outcome of the soil being planted within the church. But even those within the church are not always clear. Jesus makes it very clear in his teaching. Even those within the church are not always aware that there are these two soils and that the plant is the plants are growing up right side by side and yet there is a vast difference between them. In fact, at times, according to the teaching of Jesus, even those represented by these two soils, the plants that are in the weed-infested ground, the plants that are in the good ground, are not aware what type of plant they are. And so Jesus tells us this so that we'll understand the character of his kingdom, which is most immediately found in this church, but more broadly in the church throughout the world, all the places where Christ is worshipped, that's his kingdom. And this is a parable that speaks about the character of that kingdom. And these two final soils are part of that kingdom. And we need to understand the difference, and we must be ready to apply what Jesus says here to ourselves, but not only to ourselves, but to others as well, so that we understand why things look the way they do when they come. So let's be clear on several points initially. First, the weed-infested ground in this parable is radically different from all the other soils, despite looking in certain respects like all three. Now, how does the weedy ground look like the first two? The hard packed soil where the seed falls and never even germinates, where it's immediately picked off. Well, it's like that one and the second one, the rocky ground where the weed sprouts quickly with joy, but then is, is just as quickly fallen away. This seed on this soil is like them in that it is also fruitless. It does not bear fruit. And in that way, it is absolutely of a kind with the first two. This is the common character of the first three soils. None of them produce fruit. None of them are fruitful. These lives represented by these, these seeds and these soils are not fruitful. They don't bear fruit. That's their common character. The weedy ground produces plants, but unlike the first two soils, this ground produces plants 
that look like the fourth soil, the good soil. Now, how does it look like it? And it doesn't produce fruit, and the fourth soil produces fruit. But the weed-infested ground is ground where plants survive and do not die. They live. They go through all the things that are a part of life except producing fruit. They're just like the fourth soil with one major difference. They never produce fruit. There's no fruit. Ultimately, the great difference between the seed planted in the soil that's infested with weeds and the seed planted on good soil is apparent when you consider their end and their standing in the final judgment. You may look and not be able to discern which types of soil are around you or your life is. You may wonder, I think that there's enough given in the Bible and we're going to speak about it that we should be able to discern. But you may initially say, I don't know, and, and that's proper and appropriate because it takes time to discern this type of soil and to discern the good soil. The great difference and the great distinction between them is made clear at the time of the final judgment. Because at the time of the final judgment, the weed-infested soil where the plants grow but never produce a crop is damned. Those, those plants are doomed. Those, those plants, they go to hell. In parable after parable, teaching after teaching, Jesus makes this absolutely clear. That if we do not produce fruit, we do not obtain eternal life. Fruit and eternal life walk hand in hand. There is no eternal life if there is no fruit. So the lives represented by the seed on the rocky soil and the weed-infested soil on the path, all three are alike in that they're going to hell. All of them. Not one in any of those categories is saved. Not one is redeemed. And yet, the, sown, the, weed that, the seed that is sown amidst the weeds is unique from the first two in that it actually probably thinks it's going to eternal life in heaven. And the first two... The one never even considers it. It just goes on with its life of sin. The other one falls away quickly. This one sticks. This one abides. Jesus tells us that at the judgment, all mankind will stand before his throne. And he will divide them, he says, as a shepherd divides his sheep from his goats. And on his right, he will place the sheep of his kingdom. And on his left, he'll place the goats who have no place in heaven. And the sheep will... Ask him, he says, how did we do anything to deserve this? Where was our fruit? And he'll say, let me tell you, as much as you did it to one of the least of these, these things, giving water, visiting in prison, you did it unto me. And the goats, they'll say the, the inverse, but almost exactly the same thing. When did we not do this for you, Jesus? When did we not help you when you were in prison, clothe you when you had no clothing, visit you when you were sick, give you water? And Jesus said, he'll say to them, as much as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And so you have a group of goats, and they are charged with one failure and doomed on the basis of one failure. And you have a group of sheep, and they are credited 
with even just one act of righteousness, one fruitful act. And superficially, the, the two soils look alike. Eternally, they are opposites. We may wonder, how can it be? What is the distinction? Well, we'll come to that, I believe. Never in all his teaching does Jesus give hope to those whose lives are unfruitful. Never in all he speaks and says and does does he give those who are unfruitful hope that they will receive eternal life from his Father. If you know the teaching of Jesus, there is a theme, you know, that runs through his parables, his teaching, and even his actions. From the very first days of his ministry to his resurrection, and it's a theme of his choice and his calling and his empowering for fruitfulness. He calls them to be fruitful. He gives them the Holy Spirit that they may be fruitful. He tells them that they must be fruitful. And he warns them that if they're not fruitful, they should not think they have anything of him. So that on the last week of his life, as he's going into Jerusalem with his disciples, and he looks and he sees a fig tree and he goes up to grab a fig from it. And he finds there's no fig on the fig tree. He curses it. Later in the day, he and his disciples are coming back. They walk past the fig tree and they see that it has, over, over the course of the day, it has, it has died. It's now dead. And they look at Jesus and they say, whoa, whoa, look at the fig tree. You know what that parable says, or not that it's a parable, but the story of that fig tree that Jesus cursed, which is an example of what the Father will do to those who do not bear fruit. What it says is that it wasn't the season for figs. It wasn't the fig season. There weren't supposed to be figs on that tree at that time of year. But God expects fruit. Even if you're bone dry and dead, you can bear fruit from, for God. All the time in the Bible we see bone dry, dead people bearing fruit for God. Abraham and Sarah think they're dead in their age and that they can never bear fruit, but God gives them. You just go through the Bible and God brings fruit. So that when we, we come to the end of Revelation, we see that the, there's streets in heaven, and those streets are lined with trees that bear fruit. And the Bible says they bear fruit in season and out of season. There's never a season when fruit is not in season in heaven. God expects fruit, constant, constant fruit. And this is what he calls us to. Whether you're young or old, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're wise or not learned, whatever you are, God has made it possible for you to bear fruit, and he expects fruit from you. The tree that does not bear fruit is damned. In the parable, the servant who takes his master's treasure, the king's treasure, given to him before the king goes out on a journey, given to him along with several others to invest, and he alone of the ones that are given the, the talents of gold by the king buries it. So that the king's return, he can give it back intact, yet without increase. The king returns and he says, give me my money. And he gives him back and says, I, I, 
I have everything you gave me right here. And the king says, take it away from him. Give it to the one who has the most. For even what he has will be taken away from this one who was not fruitful. Jesus tells a parable of a fig tree that does not bear fruit. And the owner of the vineyard goes to the, the guy who is in charge, the foreman of the vineyard, and he says, cut it down. The guy who's in charge says, wait a second, let's cultivate it for a year. Let me tend this fig tree for a year. But then if it bears no fruit after a year, we will cut it down. Do you get the gist of Jesus' teaching? I, I think it's absolutely apparent. If you do not bear fruit, you die. And you die eternally. It is vital to bear fruit. Now, we have a question to ask here. And that question that inevitably jumps to our minds when we hear Jesus say this kind of thing is, well, tell me what I've got to do. What is the fruit? And if you think about the Gospels and you think about the Bible, what you realize is that there are lots of things that are described as fruit. But Jesus never gives an easy answer as to what you need to do to be bearing fruit. Does he? So we see in the Bible that having children is bearing fruit for God. And God is pleased when we have children. But not just children, children that we raise to know him. Children who are the fruit of, of faith. So having children can be a fruit that is pleasing to God. The Bible makes clear that our righteous deeds are fruit. That we, in doing righteous deeds, are bearing fruit for the kingdom. That holiness is a fruit of the kingdom. The Bible makes clear that when we distribute the gospel and go out and sow the word of God to people, that that's a kind of fruit as well, what it, what it causes. But the Bible also makes clear that when we go out and we give the gospel, that if we give the gospel to people, we really don't know what's going to happen to it. And that, in fact, we may plant the gospel, others may water it, but God is causing the growth. And so Paul writes, then, so then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but it's God who causes the growth. And in fact, Paul writes about himself, he says, towards the end of his life he's speaking, and he says, therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And so the Apostle Paul, towards the end of his life, actually is concerned that he who has preached the gospel and produced fruit for the kingdom of God, you would say, could end up disqualified from the kingdom of God. So it is not conclusive proof that you're bearing good fruit. It's proof that God's at work, that people come to know the Lord, that you speak the, the news about God to people. Now, am I discouraging you? I know it's a little discouraging. We'd all like to say, well, I led so-and-so to the Lord. I did this or I did that. But the Bible doesn't let us say that kind of thing. It warns us over and over again that God gives the increase, that God is the one responsible. Even a, a holy life. 
and good seed on good soil will speak the word of God to people and it, it will be holy. It will be righteous. There will be personal avoidance of sin. And yet that, that righteousness is not conclusive evidence that you are fruitful. Discipline and obedience in itself, though good and necessary, is still not the entire good fruit that Jesus seeks in his followers. It will be there, but it's not proof. Now, you know this is so, but let me remind you of how you know it. Jesus tells a parable later in Matthew, a parable of ten virgins who go out at night to wait for the bridegroom. They take their lamps, and they want to be ready when the bridegroom arrives. Now, the bridegroom's arrival is constantly spoken of by Jesus as his return. Be ready. Be ready. I'm the bridegroom. Be ready when I come, when I come back. Ten virgins go out. Five have brought extra oil. Five have not. When the bridegroom arrives, the five who did not bring the extra oil have run back to town to get more oil. They are not there. The five who brought the extra oil go with the bridegroom into the banquet, and the five who had to go back to get the oil are not welcomed into the banquet. Now, there's a, an old Puritan named Goodwin that I've read on this parable, and the one thing I will never forget is the point he made, and then I've seen made by many others, that all ten are virgins. All ten are virgins. They're righteous. But five do not enter the banquet. So righteousness, while it's necessary, speaking the word of God while it's necessary, good deeds while they're necessary, these are not in themselves evidence that we are the good seed producing good fruit. Jesus warns that you don't look at your, your righteousness. In the parable he told about the two men going into the temple to pray, the Pharisee, the tax collector, Pharisee stood there saying, God, I thank you that I'm righteous. I'm not like other people. I'm not a swindler, unjust, adulterer, or even a, a lousy guy like this tax collector. And that man was speaking the truth, but he was not good seed on good soil. Jesus said that tax collector left forgiven. The Pharisee didn't. Pharisees look good. And we can be Pharisees and have nothing to do with Christ. In fact, Jesus says that the one who is forgiven much loves God much, and the one forgiven little loves God little. And certainly one of the heart things of fruitfulness is understanding your own sinfulness. Certainly one of the great things that leads to fruitfulness in our lives is understanding how absolutely undeserving we are of any of God's mercy. And one of the ways that we come to understand that is by a life where we really see our sin. The Bible calls David a man after God's own heart, and yet David, we know, was an adulterer and a murderer. How could an adulterer and a murderer be a man after God's own heart? The, the obvious answer is through his repentance, through his bold public repentance, through his bold public Proclamation of Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a, a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord. His prayer that God would forgive him. Honestly, to be fruitful, many of us might be helped. Uh, this is a, uh, 
how do I put this? Um, might be helped by having very grave sins in our life that we have repented of so that we can understand that there's nothing good in us. I'm not urging you to go out and murder or commit adultery. But I am urging you to understand that you're a sinner and that this understanding is key to being fruitful. So what is it that separates the, the fruit on the, the, the plants planted in good soil and those plants from the unfruitful plants that are in the weed-infested ground? What is it that is specific to the one that is lacking in the other? Jesus gives us two keys here. I really can't tell you what God is looking for from you. I can tell you what Jesus in this parable says, make sure you kill if you're going to be fruitful, all right? Jesus says two things in this parable that you and I need to be on watch, on guard against, watchful against, because if they're there, we will be unfruitful. These, these, these things that cause us to be unfruitful these weeds the weeds that crowd out faith and life and fruitfulness in our lives are named in verse 22 where Jesus says and the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful Jesus says these weeds Choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. In fact, it may be that there is initial fruit, but it becomes unfruitful and spends the rest of its life unfruitful. We have certain plants in our gardens, certain flowers in our flower beds that flowered once and then have become dead in a way. They don't flower anymore. My mother used to call it a rose going wild. And I, I won't go through the, the specifics of it, but if, if a rose goes wild, it puts out vast quantities of stems and no, no blooms ever. And this is what happens. It grows and grows, but it never bears fruit. These weeds choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the first of these weeds Jesus mentions is the worry of the world. Now remember, Jesus has spoken about worry a whole bunch of times thus far in our going through Matthew. And I just want to mention one, notably the Sermon on the Mount where he said, remember what Jesus said on this, as we come to this verse, what we read back last year in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in Matthew 6, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body. As to what you'll put on, is not the life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, 
or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Content yourself with the problems of today, Jesus says. Be satisfied with the issues you face today that you can handle today and do not take on tomorrow. Now, Jesus argues against worry using a number of different examples. The first of which is the birds of the air. And he says, look, the birds, they fly, they fly, and God makes sure they're fed. Okay? So don't worry. Then he says, look, you worry about clothing. Consider the lilies of the field. You go out into the fields, and there are the wild lilies. And they're beautiful. And they're not propagated, and they're not tended, but God makes sure they grow, and he clothes them with a finery that even Solomon in all his richest splendor could not could not surpass. So he says, God is taking care of everything. Will God, who cares about the sparrows and who cares about the lilies, not care about you? Will he not care for you? Then he ties it to faith. And he says, you have little faith. Remember this, okay? He tells us not to worry because our Father loves us and will take care of our needs. He says that worry is useless, actually counterproductive. But here in our passage, Jesus says something very different. He warns that worry will make us unfruitful and lead eventually to our destruction. Here, his message is a warning about the lack of worry rather than a promise that will help us in our worries. Here, instead of saying, God will take care of you, Jesus says, you'd better be careful about your worries because they will damn you. They will lead you to be unfruitful and cause damnation. Now, you understand it's the positive and the negative. The positive, back in the Sermon on the Mount, is that God knows your needs and he cares for you. The negative is, if you lead your life this way, you will go to hell. What are these worries? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke of being worried about your life, what you'll eat, drink, your body, what you'll put on, everyday needs. And it may seem that Jesus is speaking about that same kind of worry here. And of course, those worries are included in what Jesus is speaking of here, but that's not, that's not the full extent of what Jesus is speaking here. These basic worries do form part of Jesus' warning the worry Jesus speaks of here, while including fundamental needs, is much bigger. What Jesus says here is literally, this is the man who hears the word, the weed-infested ground, the seed sown there. This is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the, and I'm using the Greek word, the aeon, A-E, alpha, epsilon, omicron, mu, okay, aeon. And the worry of the aeon and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word. And so, though our, our Bibles, many of them translate this as a place, the worries of the world, it's really not in its original meaning a place. What our translators are doing is saying, Jesus, by speaking of an eon or an age, 
is referring to the age of the world, okay? This world age rather than the heavenly age to come. And so they call it the worries of the, the world. But the word is actually about a time. It's about an eon, an age. And in the Greek at the time of Christ, generally if you spoke of an eon, it was a certain, a certain period of time, a certain uh, known quantity of time, you know, the age of slavery, the age of the, the depression, the age of this or that. And that was what an eon would be. It would be an age. And so I don't, I don't object to them translating it world, but the, the primary meaning of the word is a, a period of time. The worries of the age, the worries of this day, choke the plant, killing its fruitfulness. Now, some of these worries are timeless. Whenever we're in the world, we worry about food and clothing and these. But the word also includes in a specific way the, the worries of the age in which we live. It is the worries that you feel living in 21st century America. The, the worries that you have somehow hidden away inside your bones that, you, that bother you. Even without your recognizing it all day, every day. The sense of disquiet, of things not quite being right. That all of you have. All of us have it. And those worries for most of us are not about food or shelter or clothing, these more simple things. But there is this deep sense of anxiety, of care about our nation, about the world in which we live, about a nation where we're not allowed to speak and the consequences of that for our children. And so we have worries. There are the recurring worries of the world. Those that are always with us, food, clothing. Then there are the specific worries of our day. And what Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount is that if we forget that God is still the Lord, if we no longer remember that God has said, I reign above, that I am enthroned in heaven and my sovereignty rules over all and that we, as his children, are the apple of his eye and protected in the palm of his hand, we will be unfruitful. To forget these things is to forget our strength. To forget these things is to forget the thing that gives us power. Fundamental to fruitfulness is a belief in the God of Scripture, that we believe in God as Jesus knew and trusted him, a God who reigns over all, a God who presides over everything and from whom everything comes, everything from the Father's hand, so that nothing can touch us except our God has first by his hand allowed it to enter our lives. Nothing touches us except he first decrees it. And nothing he decrees, nothing he permits to come from his hand will be to your harm, ultimately. It may feel like it, but ultimately it will not be to your harm. All things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That is not a verse that you can just say, well, super saints are allowed to live by that and believe it. But I find it hard and I'm not going to try. This is basic faith. If we don't trust this and believe this, we don't believe in God at all. He's not a father to us. He's not powerful. 
He doesn't love us. He doesn't control all things. He is not God. Fail to believe this, really, and, and you don't believe in God. You understand what I'm saying? That's Jesus' point. God takes care of the birds. God takes care of the flowers. God takes care of you. He's a father. Why are you worried? Why are we worried? Why are we worried? Worry, worry, worry. Last year has been a year of worry. And it's rendered some of us unfruitful, hasn't it? We haven't reached out. Some of us have stopped attending church. We're not there. Worry. Satan has done a great job of sowing worry in your life, in our life. Worry, worry, worry on every side. The election, the consequences of the election, what we face in the days ahead. And we listen to the professional propagators of worry, those who go out and sow the seeds of worry when we listen to the news. And we go and we feed at the trough of worry seed. When we turn on Fox News at night and we think, and we get angry and we are disturbed and we think about how Washington is corrupt and we think about how awful it is and what we must do to take back our nation and how we are going to have a righteous president someday and how we'll make that come to pass and whether I should go into politics or I should send my kids into politics so that we don't have to worry like this anymore. And worry has made us dead. Worry has killed us. Women, I want to speak to you in particular. Many of you are pilgrims on the worry road. You are not pilgrims on the road to eternal life. You are pilgrims wandering the road of worry. Your life is the sum of your worries. And you smother your family in your fears. You fear your children not being accepted or being unpopular and you'll do anything to, to allow your children to get a leg up, to get ahead. So, you worry about them being unpopular. I'm including fathers at this point because fathers you have the same kind of worries, maybe not to the same degree. You think to yourself, if I deprive my child of the internet, my daughter will not be able to use Instagram. Her social life will be blighted. She will stand out in school. She'll be the only girl in her class without an iPhone. And you say to yourself, I can't make my daughter stand out like that. What would that do to my dear girl? And so you make sure she has the iPhone so that she has standing in her class like the others so that she can go about her, her life on Instagram, right? Or Facebook or Snapchat or whatever it is. And you go, Phew, dodge that bullet, right? Dodge that bullet. Never thinking that that phone you gave her is bringing into her life much greater wickedness than you preserved her from, which wasn't wickedness at all. That she could be sexting, that she is living for her looks, that she is caught up in the giddy giggling over fashions that are the, the stuff of everyday social life in school. 
and you've sent her right there. And you've put your daughter, because you worry. You worry that she won't be accepted, that she won't be popular. So you put her in the midst of the wolves, your little lamb. Same with sons. Oh, he needs, he needs a phone. He needs, he needs a means of communication. It will keep him safe. He could be in a bad part of the city and stuck in that phone. And you are not even thinking about it. You've discarded. It doesn't register in your mind that what you've given him to is access to naked bodies which he worships. You worry and you become unfruitful. You worry about the world rather than about God and pleasing him. Because if we worried about God, I'm telling you most of us would get the internet out of our homes. I've never yet known a person who has actually gotten the internet out of their home. They're worried, well, how would I communicate? How would I do this? How would I do that? And they don't do it. Worry, it kills you. You worry about your children not being popular in school, fathers with sons. So they show some skill in a sport. And you say, oh, this is good. It's good for their socialization. It's good for them growing up to be men. I want them in sport. You make sure they're in sport. And then the time comes when the sheep are separated from the goats in the sport world. And they're either going to go on and become better and better. Or it's going to decline and the cost of becoming better and better and more and more popular in that realm is that they go to weekend tournaments. That they miss church and you miss church with them. And you're worried, aren't you? Worried that they won't excel in sports. That they'll miss out on the world of sports and all that offers. And so you, you miss church with them and in 15 years when your son is on the golf course on Sunday mornings you say what happened and God says to you oh your worries your worries you worried you didn't obey God is faithful I don't know how to make it clear. One of the things that I'd love to be able to give as a direct injection from me to you is, and I know many of you have it even greater ways than I do, but it's the confidence that I've come to at 61 years of age that God is good. And that no man who gives anything up for God ever regrets it. Ever, ever, ever. I'm telling you, we face these decisions with our own kids. Some of you haven't been here long enough to know that my son Nathan was at one time a very good wrestler. And a wrestler who went to the state meet. But he never wrestled in a tournament on Sunday morning, ever. If that was the cost, then far better to miss the wrestling. And he didn't wrestle girls. They didn't do that either. Would forfeit rather than wrestle girls. And I think back and I go, what could Nathan have been had he been allowed to wrestle? 
Think of how great Nathan would be and how much less of a mess he would be. <laughs> if I'd only allowed him to wrestle those years, oh my! All right, I'm being ridiculous, aren't I? But I'm not. God is faithful. Stop worrying. All right, I want to close with the last thing Jesus says. It's going to be brief. There's a second destroyer of fruitfulness that Jesus speaks about, and it's the deceitfulness of wealth. Now, notice he doesn't say wealth. He says the deceitfulness of wealth destroys fruitfulness. The deceitfulness of wealth. Of course, you can't have the deceitfulness of wealth without at least having a desire for wealth. So they're not totally divorced. And the deceitfulness of wealth mounts as wealth mounts. And the Bible makes that very clear as well. But more often, the deceitfulness of wealth comes to us before we have wealth, causes us to have wealth, and becomes a, a companion in our accumulation of wealth. There is a powerful relationship between this enemy of fruitfulness and the first one Jesus mentions. Because, what is it? Because every worry you have seems like it can be solved by money, right? So if your kids have money and are well-dressed and have every opportunity, boy, I don't have to worry about their socialization so much. And if you have money, well, I can look very righteous. Money is a great way of having, at least superficially, a very nice family. Have you ever noticed that the people at Walmart who are screaming at each other in the checkout line, the husband and wife, usually look like they're poor? Do you think that they're more sinful than the rich people in that same line? No. Do you think they have worse marriages than the rich people? No. But what the rich people have is the veneer of righteousness that, that wealth allows. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you something. When we began as a church, and I got a, a, a raise in pay 19 years ago from about 26000 a year to 50-some thousand. When I got that first raise, you know what happened? Our fights in our home seemed to decline by 90%. It was amazing how a little bit more money allowed us to have a lot more lubrication in our relationships. This is wealth. People in the United States revere the, the wealthy who give money away. Bill Gates. Never stopping to recognize that every study ever shown makes it absolutely piercingly clear that the poorest end of our culture, as a percentage of their income, gives much more to charity than the wealthiest. Wealth is deceitful. Wealth will drag you to hell. The desire for wealth, the thinking that wealth will make you something that will ease your worries that God is going to provide for you by making you wealthy is a lie, and it's a lie from Satan. Do not think that wealth will cover your sins. Actually, it will here on earth, but it certainly won't in heaven. The rich man and Lazarus, the parable of Jesus, story of Jesus may not be a parable. Rich man thinks his wealth makes him unassailable. 
he is the righteous one. And he is amazed when he dies to look up into heaven and see the poor beggar at his gate up in heaven by Abraham. And here he is in the flames of hell. And he says, whoa, whoa, what happened? It shouldn't happen that way. It didn't happen that way on earth. And Father Abraham says to him, on earth, you received your good things. And Lazarus, this poor beggar who was at the end of your driveway, Lazarus got his tough things. But now it's heaven. And in heaven, things are reversed. And you're now receiving the bad things that you didn't allow yourself to receive because you didn't trust me and on earth. And Lazarus, who didn't go after those things and couldn't, is now receiving his reward. Do not trust in wealth. Do not make the pursuit of wealth your thing. What did Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And everything else will be added to you. Seek God. Seek to know him. Love him. Understand that he is a good father and that he will care for you and you'll be fruitful. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and his immense perfection and the teaching which comes into our lives and floors us, Father, and knocks us over. We pray that we will not be this bad soil where weeds come up and choke out and keep us from fruit. But may we be willing, Father, to look to you, turning away from the worries of this world, turning away from the desire for wealth, so that we are fruitful for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.